the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. Audio drama, poetry, fiction. My guest today on Alternative Stories is Philippa Holloway. Philippa is the author of The Half-Life of Snails, a new novel which is coming out with Parthian Books in May. Philippa, welcome to Alternative Stories. Hello. Uh, We've come today to the Hat Green secret nuclear bunker in Cheshire. Uh, where you're the writer in residence, Philippa. Um, so there might be some noises uh, off microphone because there are visitors around the bunker today. But can we start with you telling me uh, a bit about the writer in residence role at the bunker, please? Yes. So uh, Hat Green Nuclear Bunker is a heritage site. It's a museum. Um, and As a writer in residence, I come to the site, I respond to the history and the stories of the Cold War and of nuclear threat, I respond to the space itself, um, and I seek out narratives and poetry um, in both past events and current events. I also work with members of the public running workshops uh, to create new responses to nuclear issues. And nuclear power and the fears of the nuclear age are recurring themes within your work. Can you tell me a bit about your fascination with all things nuclear and how they've informed your creativity? Please. Yes. So it all started when I was very, very young. And I often joke that I started writing this book when I was six years old. Uh, one of my earliest memories was the Chernobyl disaster occurring um, and seeing the footage on the news, not really understanding what was happening. I was only six years old. Um, but I remember my mum keeping the doors and windows closed and knowing that there was this threat, this unseen threat moving across. Um, And like everybody else, I think, moving away from the Cold War era, I forgot about it for years until many years later, I was sent to do some teaching at Wilver Nuclear Power Station. And I felt very anxious and I I started to question why. Why am I so anxious about going to visit a nuclear power station? there's something sublime about seeing a nuclear power station on the coast. And I I became quite overwhelmed by it. And that started a process of me questioning where these anxieties come from, how they're formed and how we live with them. And being interested in landscapes that have nuclear power stations on, you know, within a community, how do communities respond to them? And the complexities of those relationships. And that was really the start of my academic and creative research into nuclear landscapes and, and, Uh, using nuclear psychogeography as a way of of understanding our relationship with those spaces and that's really where the book uh, was born through those anxieties and that interest small for his age, only a month and a half into his second year at primary. Not quite six. Goose grey eyes and jackdaw stick nest hair that makes him look smaller. She won't cut it, no matter how many times people hint or state bluntly that she should. 
Being different will give him strength. In the long run, he clambers over the barbed wire top fence, agile, careful not to catch his jeans on the rusting spikes, dashes into the field as if he is a wild animal released from a cage. Helen watches him, her heart swelling along with a flock. Standing here on the farm her family has owned for generations, looking out over fields of fat pregnant ewes and wind-bent hawthorns, she can usually, even if only for a second forget, could become lost in these moments, by the rhythm of them, the realness. If the threat of losing it all wasn't a constant itch like nettle rash in the back of her mind. So your novel combines a story of two sisters brought into conflict by differences in their personalities and and by their jobs. Uh, Helen is a prepper and protester against nuclear energy, whilst Jennifer is a worker at the Wilver nuclear power station in Anglesey. So you must have done a lot of research into the nuclear industry and those who protest against it and prepare for nuclear and other disasters in the writing of The Half-Life of Snails. Yes, I did. Um, A lot of that research was actually serendipitous research from living and working in those communities, uh, listening to people, paying attention to the protests that were going on against the building of a new nuclear power station. When I was working at Wilver, I would talk to people who worked there, people in the communities who, you know, welcomed the new nuclear power station. Um, And the important thing that came out of that was that there is no single response to nuclear power stations in the landscape it's much more complex and how they work within communities um, and how people respond to them is very personal and based on multiple different factors uh, to do with nuclear power and to do with those communities themselves Um, from that when I started doing my research I engaged in some psychogeographical practice in the area and started you know talking to people with more of an idea of of pulling out some of those embodied and emplaced responses to the nuclear power station and sort of examining how the power station sat in the landscape itself. Um, And really the characters for the book emerge from those landscapes and those places, from those roles. So I was seeking a kind of an authenticity of, of complex responses, that kind of multiplicity of feelings that we can get from a single space because places are complex. Mm, absolutely. And, and, and I think that the, 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 the thing in your book that, that really brings that out is that you know, two, two, two sisters are experiencing that, that landscape and, and that nuclear threat, in, in inverted commas, in very different ways because of, their, because of their roles. And I think that plot device of um, siblings or families divided, but also brought together in a strange way by by some external force in this case nuclear power um is one that we've seen before in literature and films were there any books or movies that particularly influenced the half-life of snails that's a really interesting question because a number of people sort of asked me what what other books about siblings who are struggling to communicate who or who are divided or go on different paths did you draw on um and i actually didn't turn to literature for that research at all um I think, you know, there is a risk if we constantly turn only to literature for our research that there becomes a distance from sort of authentic life 
in our writing. Um, I come from quite a big family. I have a lot of siblings myself, um, but also I'm interested in observing how friendships change and develop, how people can have very different ideas, but still things that are so deeply in common or their bonds of affection um, and family history tie them together. And so that's where I was really seeking out these ideas. Once I'd created these characters, it was just a case of letting them take that journey of miscommunication. The book is really about them learning about each other after, you know, as we grow up, we tend to separate as adults. And then there is this opportunity in the book for these characters to start learning about each other and why each other has these very strong opinions. Um, and that really allowed for their stories to cross over in the book. And so it was just a case of following their journey in the narrative. Um, rather than trying to impose something that has become a literary trope or a, an idea that is drawn from other literary characters. Back in their barn loft bedroom, Helen sits on her haunches while Jack brings her folded underpants and bald socks, fleece pyjamas and a tattered book for her to tuck into his rucksack. Already it holds waterproofs, a water bottle and a hand-powered torch, high-protein snacks and a silver foil survival blanket neatly folded into a small square pouch. There is a list in carefully formed child's handwriting inside a small brown notebook and after each item is carefully stowed he marks a tick on the page with a stubby pencil. Think, she says when he's finished. Is there anything missing from the list? He sways in his big hiking boots, rotates like a miniature scarecrow in a breeze, scanning the room for anything he's missed. Stops turning. Modron and Marborn, get them then. He picks up a large pickle jar from the floor at the side of his mattress. It's half full of cabbage scraps and sticks and somewhere underneath the leaves there are two large garden snails buried deep inside their shells. I'm ready! How much of the character of Helen uh, is based on yourself? Um, it's really interesting because Helen and Jennifer effectively started off as a different character in some short stories I was writing and I split them in half and there are elements of myself in both of them but the nice thing about fiction is that you can take things that you're interested in that you're anxious about that you the questions that you have about life aspects of yourself and then take them and stretch them and push them as far as you can go so I mentioned earlier I had some sort of anxieties about going back to Wilver um, and being in proximity of nuclear power stations and so I asked the question what happens if you push that anxiety much further so I'm not a prepper myself but the question was, if I have those anxieties and I take them and I push them and ask those questions over and over again, how far can I take it? Where would that character be? And that's how Helen came into being. Mm. So there are aspects of her personality that are, are drawn from me and from my responses to the landscape, but they're very much tested to their limits. And that's a lot of fun to do as a writer. And they are themselves, you know, as characters, they are individuals. So they're not me but they maybe come from some of those questions that I had. I need to go. I have a long journey. Jennifer dries her hands and tucks a strand of hair behind her ear. 
Has he got everything? He's sorted. Are you leaving contact details and itinerary? It's all in the envelope I gave Johan. What if there's an emergency? Jack knows what to do if there's an emergency. How can he know? He knows. He's five. He's nearly six. He's prepared. Part of the backdrop to the story are events in Ukraine uh, that happened back in 2013 and 14. Clearly there are, there's huge relevance to events currently taking place in Ukraine. Can you tell me a bit about the Ukrainian elements of the story, please? Yeah, so the story is actually a contiguous narrative that's split between Anglesey and uh, Ukraine, particularly Chernobyl's exclusion zone, where I did... um, quite a bit of my research and in the in the book these landscapes are kind of mirrored and the book is really about territory it's about our relationship with place and with landscape how our identity is formed by by the landscapes in which we grow up and in which we live and how those landscapes are informed by the people who are in them the book is set in 2014, in the, the spring of 2014, um, during the Euromaidan revolution. And I actually visited Ukraine um, in early 2016, where the aftermath was still very much present. The narrative really explores these contested borders. So Helen's farm is under threat from the new power station requisitioning the land um, to take away the ancestral farmland. And in Ukraine, obviously, the Chernobyl disaster led to thousands of people being displaced from their homes and their farms and where they'd lived for generations. It's about these bigger forces, the the nuclear industry, um, disconnecting people from landscapes that are very much part of their identity. Obviously, the Euromaidan revolution was also about territory. It was about the sort of pro-European and pro-Soviet clashes that were taking place. And that idea that, you know, Ukraine is a contested landscape itself. It sits between Europe and and the Soviet Union and is very vulnerable in that sense. And so it felt right that the characters would be caught up in that political struggle as part of the story, that everybody really in the book just wants to get on with living their lives in their landscapes, in their communities. But there are these much bigger forces that keep threatening that stability and that connection with their space and with who they are. Um, And obviously, sadly, we're seeing the aftermath of what happened in 2014 now playing out on a mass scale and so many Ukrainians now are being displaced from their homes and uh, their their ancestral place in the world Um, and so these traumas are now being played out in this in this huge way that I hoped would never be relevant in relationship to the book I hope the book was looking backwards not projecting forwards and it's heartbreaking to see that those issues that I was exploring in the book are now a truth for so many people in Ukraine at the moment. And it was, uh, I mean, I, I was reading the book at the time that the invasion happened. And, and I think what probably on the first day of the invasion, the Russian troops pitched up at Chernobyl and suddenly the book in my hand had become much, much more 
I think relevant and topical than that it had even seen before and um you know I think listeners uh, listeners to this podcast who who read the book will 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 certainly see those relevances and Philippa I know that you you traveled to Ukraine and to the Chernobyl site as as the character of Helen does in the in the book um as part of your research how did you find that trip and 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 how did it did it inform the events of the novel in any way or had you already decided what the story was was going to be the the trip was actually essential to the novel um I already had an idea that I wanted to write this contiguous narrative but I didn't feel despite the amount of research I did online about the Chernobyl exclusion zone the history the science behind it I really needed to get a sense of how it feels to be in that space um, and so I mentioned psychogeography earlier. So psychogeography is, is the study of how particular places and environments affect our, our behaviours and our feelings. And I felt that I'd, I'd undertaken that research um, on the coastline of Anglesey around the power plant, uh, Wilver nuclear power plant, um, and that it was vital that in order to represent the exclusion zone and um, a character responding to that space that I needed to visit there, um, and I was able to arrange a trip. I travelled alone. Um, I didn't go on a motorbike like my character does. I went on a plane. I was going to ask that. Um, and I had a guide who took me around on my own rather than as part of one of the tours that were operating in the Chernobyl zone at the time. So I got to spend a lot of time on my own in the zone uh, with my fixer sort of hanging around in the background, making sure I was safe. Um, and that was really vital for depicting that space, not just depicting the concrete details of the space but depicting how it feels to be in an irradiated landscape how it feels to be in a space where communities once lived and to see the legacy of sort of the the traumas that arose from the events of Chernobyl I was also very lucky that I was welcomed into the home of some of the self-settlers. So there were a number of people who, after the exclusion zone was created around Chernobyl, uh, made their way back to their homes and refused to leave. So there are still many villagers with now quite elderly people living there. And I was welcomed into the homes of um, two of the self-settlers, uh, one of whom made me very welcome, cooked for me, got me very drunk on her homemade cherry wine, um, gave me lots of hugs and were very open about their experiences and their connection to the landscape and why they'd returned. Um, and one of the really powerful things that came out of that was a statement of, you know, if, if you leave your home, you die. And actually, it's better to stay in a space that may have radiation in it or may not, but to be your, your true self in that space, because that's where you belong than it is to be displaced and that's really one of the the driving forces of the book was the idea that the spaces that we live in our home where we where we become ourselves is so vital to who we are that actually quite often we will live with danger in order to stay in those spaces shape is familiar burned into her memory. A vast pile of concrete blocks hastily erected to contain the emissions. But here, in its presence, she can see it isn't quite solid. The surface is grey and pockmarked like a sandcastle that might collapse, fractured. 
There are water stains streaking from the seams in dark tiers, rusty ladders buckled against the pitted flanks. Scaffolding props up the front. Ice and snow have caused fissures and birds nest in the cracks. And it is leaking, she knows, but there is nothing to taste, smell or feel as it does. So Philippa, it seems that since you finished The Half-Life of Snails and, and the publication date was, was announced, uh, events here in, in the UK and overseas have really enhanced its relevance and topicality to, to readers, um, as well as the Ukrainian situation we, which we've talked about. We've also heard in the last couple of weeks about the UK government's energy strategy that relies probably much more heavily than most of us expected on nuclear power. Um, and in your writing, it seems that nuclear power is a sort of unseen character in your novel, looming over lives and landscapes, as you said. Is that intentional, that, that, that nuclear power is almost a character in the novels? Yes, very much so. Um, it's landscape is often or setting and landscape is often something that is very much overlooked when people talk about writing but really places where all stories happen and all characters come from place and are responding to place and one of my first intentions of writing the book was that I wanted the landscape to be as important a character in the novel as the people themselves um, and to have that real sense of presence so the nuclear power stations depicted in the novel they are a really they're a really distinct feature in the landscapes they have their own kind of personalities their own influence on the on the experience and the feeling of those landscapes and also they have a big influence over how people behave and operate in those landscapes so the identity of the characters are drawn from how they relate to the nuclear power stations whether they're pro or anti-nuclear whether they you know work and to them going into a nuclear power station is a very boring mundane activity no different to going into any other office um, it's amazing how quickly people become familiarized with certain aspects of a landscape wilver nuclear power station is situated on on an area of natural outstanding natural beauty on the anglesey coastline um and its design is really interesting. So it was designed by a landscape artist called Sylvia Crow. And it was designed to be both seen and unseen. So you can't hide a nuclear power station on a coastline. Uh, but what you can do is landscape around it and make it feel like it belongs there. So the colours that the buildings are painted in, the, the reactors, the turbine hall, are all drawn from the landscape itself. So you see these colours of the sky, the sea, the rocks, the beautiful lichens that grow on the rocks are actually mirrored in the painting of the buildings. Um, so it becomes almost a piece of art in the landscape itself. But obviously it's an operational nuclear power station. So it generates all kinds of interesting responses in people. Um, and it was really important to me that, that both that nuclear power station and obviously the landscape of Chernobyl, which is complex and difficult and will remain so for many, many thousands of years were real characters themselves that the, the other characters responded to, related to, communicated with, and that all of those characters were, were very entwined throughout the narrative. 
If you are enjoying this edition of Alternative Stories and Fake Realities, please consider subscribing in your favourite podcast app to have new editions delivered to you the moment they are released. You'll also have access to our full archive of audio drama, poetry and fiction podcasts. We always appreciate ratings and reviews, preferably in Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. These help to raise the profile of our podcast, allowing more people to listen and more content to be produced. That physicality of your characters, was that something that you deliberately set out to to write or did that just... I think it's something that came out of the psychogeography because psychogeography is very much about um, feeling yourself in place and tuning into place and in a full sensory embodied way. So mm. rather than, you know, we ha- our, our relationship with place is both conceptual, we carry all that baggage of what we know or understand about place, but it's also an embodied response. So it's to do with all of our senses. And when I was in Chernobyl and when I was walking around Wilver, um, I was tuning into how my physicality responded to it, what I could hear, what I could smell, what I could feel. The complexities of being in, a, in an irradiated landscape is that you can't actually feel the radiation, mm-hmm. hear it, taste it, smell it. You have to have this mediating device, which is a dosimeter. So you're relying on this piece of technology to tell you whether your body is being affected by something. Um, but also, you know, Helen herself is a farmer, so her body is working with the land. She has this deep physical connection with the land. Um, and so all those sensual details of farming, the, the physical effort of it, is something that she's very attuned to. And Jack as a character is also, he's described as being attuned to the landscape. He's growing up within it. He's responding to it. He knows the contours of the ground. He knows the way the wind moves. He knows the tides. Um, and I was trying to reconnect with that. We live in a digital age where it's very easy to become disconnected from not just our own landscapes and the natural world, but from our own bodies. We mm. sit still, we focus on conceptual ideas or digi- you know, digital interactions. And actually reconnecting with the body in place was a really powerful part of that. And so that must have come through in the writing that this is about people and bodies and landscape and how they're all intertwined and how they connect that is actually a really really important part of it as well yeah i mean my research was i would just go and i would stand in a field looking at a nuclear power station and then i would turn and i would look and you know how different is it there was one bit where i turned and i deliberately spent the whole time not looking at the power station but i could still hear it and i could still feel it it was still vibrating there was this you know, you could feel it through the ground and you could hear the whir of the turbine halls. And you, you could also see the colours of it was then seeped into the landscape because they're taken from the landscape. Yeah. And obviously Chernobyl as well, you know, you just see these decaying buildings and communities and it's all there conceptually but physically as well. Mm. So yeah, that sensuality of it is a really important part. She could try to explain that she's learnt how important it is to prepare Jack. She won't be around forever. A slip on the yard to crack her skull like a fallen egg. A scratch from a rusty spike of barbed wire to flood her circulatory system with poison. Or more likely, the pea-sized lump on the cusp of her left breast that the doctor has assured her is a cyst, just fluid, but best to get it biopsied as soon as possible considering the family history. Any of these could leave him orphaned? 
What kind of mother would she be if she didn't prepare him for losing her? She could try to explain that she just needs to see it for herself while she still has the chance. This thing that has haunted her since she was Jack's age. But they don't really talk about things like that. I want to talk a little bit about uh, your writing process. Um, Now, The Half-Life of Snails is your debut novel, but you've written plenty of short fiction previously. Um, So can we start by you telling us a little bit about some of the short fiction that you've you've written, please? Um, Yes, so... I absolutely love short stories. They're an opportunity to really play with language, play with character, focus intensely on these life-changing moments or thoughts um, that the character has. There's so much elasticity in the form. I use short stories as a way of testing out my writing and creating these these little moments of understanding of what it means to be a human. And quite often they do circle back to issues of nuclearity, um, (laughs) but they are essentially about people and how people relate to one another and what it means to be a human being. And so that was an amazing um, parallel to being able to write a novel where I was able to, to stretch all of those questions about why people behave in a certain way, why they think and how they interact with one another, and to really fall into that and spend much longer time with the characters and with the story. It was kind of an indulgence in many ways to be able to write a novel mm-hmm. because I was able to go on that much longer, more intimate and intense journey with the characters. And I continued writing short stories while I was writing the novel um, as a way of, I suppose, it takes so long to write a novel that sometimes you just want to get something that's finished to its conclusion along the way because the investment of time and energy in a novel is huge. But I also found that the short stories would then feed back into my Mm. use of language, my development of characters, how I distilled things, and that keeping that tightness of language that you need for a short story helped me to ensure that the book didn't become too loose around mm. the edges, that it was, you know, each chapter, each interchange, each, each um, incident was as tightly formed as possible to keep the momentum going. Yes, yeah. I, my next question was, I think you've, you've sort of answered a little bit of it already, because the question was going to be, was... Half-Life for Snails, a lockdown project. But you've said already that you kind of the idea was there in your head from when you were yeah. when you were sick. So were you writing it? Were you physically writing it during lockdown? No, I actually finished it. So I I wrote it as part of my PhD, which was exploring how um how you could use nuclear psychogeography for fiction writing. And I finished and submitted my PhD at the end of 2019. Um, And obviously I've edited the book since, once Mm. I I got the book deal in 2020 with Parthian, sort of after the first lockdown. So I've I've been editing it for publication, obviously, but the story was completed before lockdown happened. And obviously it's really interesting because there are themes of prepping for disaster throughout the novel. Um, And I've done a lot of research into prepping for disaster and, and, you know, the issues of isolation the mental preparation rather than just the physical preparation come through the emotional preparation for how to handle 
a significant disaster. And I think in some ways that probably helped me manage lockdown because I'd gone through that process of exploring the, the complexities of survivalism. But it, was, it wasn't a lockdown project. And actually, I stopped writing during lockdown pretty much mm. um, and actually turned to curating other people's writing. So worked on a, a global writing project to help other writers get their voices heard through the isolation of lockdown um, while everyone was separated. And I didn't pick up my writing again until things started to open up again. The project you're referring to there, uh, also featured on Alternative Stories, was 100 Words of Solitude. And so yeah. if uh, listeners recognise your voice <laughs> from the podcast, that's, that's where um, we've, we've heard you before. Jack takes his Aunt Jennifer's hand and pulls her under the awning of the blanket. He has arranged the cushions to make a barricade at one end, has wedged his torch in to illuminate the space. He is rooting through his rucksack, pulls out a mini packet of biscuits, the kind she's been putting in his lunchbox, and divides the miniature cookies into two even piles. You've got to make it last. All food is rational now. Do you mean rationed? She can't help but smile, but he doesn't join in. When it's gone, you will die. He takes a tiny biscuit, nibbles around the edge until it is crenulated, and puts it back on his pile. Jennifer takes a tiny bite from one of hers and puts it back too. The soft toy she'd bought him early in the week is lying on the edge of the den's boundary. She reaches for it. No! His voice is high, sharp. What's wrong? We can play mammies and daddies. This can be the baby. Okay, but pretend the baby is sick. Let's give it some medicine then. He roots through his bag. This is the first time he has actually played a game since he's been here. She rocks the stuffed toy in her arms, almost enjoys it. No, there is no medicine. So, shall we call a doctor? She makes a phone shape with her hand, thumb to her ear, little finger close to her mouth, starts to make a trilling sound with her tongue. No, the power is gone, there is no phone. Can we use magic to make it better? There's no such thing. A tone of scorn. With your writing in in general, then how how do you how do you manage to juggle the demands of um, your, your day job as an academic? Uh, you mentioned the PhD that you were doing and parenthood and and projects like Hundred Words of Solitude. How how do you manage to juggle all of that? Um, I'm not sure I do manage. Um, <laughs> The way that I manage to keep all of those things working is to see the connections between them all. So my teaching and my academic research very much feeds into my creative practice. Um, I'm very lucky to work with some amazing colleagues at Staffordshire University and our students are a constant source of inspiration to me. 
when you are teaching and studying creative writing, you are testing out methodologies and you are consistently pushing ideas and innovation. And that gives me a huge amount of creative energy. Um, so my academic life is very much a part of my creative life. Um, and, you know, I can squeeze in bits of writing in between teaching and you know I dedicate time I try to set aside a good few hours a week just to focus on writing I'm writing my second novel at the moment I've got a collection of short stories almost finished um, quite often I will turn to short stories because I can you know complete one sometimes relatively quickly but in terms of again family life research for writing comes from everywhere mm. it comes from the conversations that we have it comes from sharing ideas I you know I'm very lucky that my husband and son are both both readers and writers and so we talk a lot about stories and we play with language a lot and so all of those things are just an amazing source of creative energy for me and I don't get as much time to write as I would like but I also don't want to sacrifice all those other wonderful aspects of my life, like teaching, like my academic research and spending as much time with my family as possible, because mm. I think I would be a poorer writer for it. So we've mentioned that uh, The Half-Life of Snails is published by Parthian. And I just wanted to ask you a bit about, you know, that the, the writer-publisher um, publisher relationship with this book. Presumably they were very supportive of your writing process did did you feel they got what you were trying to say and the story you were trying to tell in half-life of snails yes actually as i was writing the book i had parthian in my mind and in my heart for as as kind of my hope for where the book would find its home um and i had to wait quite a while for them to open up for um open submissions and then there was an agonizing wait as, you know, I was waiting for a response. Um, but I really feel that the book has found its true home with Parthian. They understand it completely. Um, my editor, Carly Holmes, has been an amazing advocate of the book. Working with her on sort of the final edits for commercial publishing has just been an absolute dream. And I think it helps that Carly's a, an author herself. Mm. So she's written an amazing novel called The Scrapbook. She's just had a collection of short stories called Figurehead published. And... You know, she, as a writer, she really understands not just the finished product, but the process of writing itself and how to, how to craft and how to draw something out and get it to its full potential. Um, and working with her has just been amazing because we, we're both working for the same end goal. So there's not been any conflict whatsoever. Parthi and themselves have been incredibly supportive of the book and of advocating for it and... I couldn't be happier. I think the book has found its its true home. They always say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but um, it does have a particularly striking cover, and we'll share some images on our um, social media feeds so that you can you can have a look. Uh, and of course, we'll share some links so that you can order a copy. Helen stares into the waving grass and borders of the field. The breeze is hard. The danger's invisible. She might never get home. She pulls the dosimeter back out of her bag and rests her hand on the power button. Anton is watching her. Do you really want to know? I don't know. He runs a finger down the rusting frame of the cage and holds it out to her. Particles freckle his fingerprint. He lets her look then lifts it to his mouth and licks them off. 
you're not afraid. His hand is shaking. He bunches his fist and shoves them deep in his pocket. Why? I am already full up of it. A little more won't hurt. You don't have to make it worse. Is it worse? Maybe this is better. Better to deliberately risk getting sick. You did. To come here. I have friends who do this, who come into this zone illegally and drink the water, eat the berries. They want to reclaim it. They play at being brave because there is nothing to lose. And you? I have lost enough already. But tonight, what choice is there? You can put the machine on and see what is the danger, but you are here already. No one won't change it. He spits, leaning close to the cage side to aim through the wire lattice. Helen turns the machine over in her hands, runs a thumb over the blank grey display screen. She can feel Anton trembling beside her. I don't need to turn it on if you don't want me to, she says. I don't want you to. An owl sweeps low over the meadow, white and silent. Helen tracks it with her eyes. It tilts its wings and hovers, its dark feet bobbing up and down beneath its pale body, tail fanned and tipping for balance. She can feel Anton looking at her, his eyes hidden under the shadow of his fringe. Are you scared? he asks. She doesn't answer. The owl drops, ascends, something drooping in its talons. Philippa, you've mentioned um, short stories, you've mentioned teaching. I, I understand there might be a, uh, a play, possibly an audio drama, uh, in the offing as well. Yeah, um, way before I'd finished the book and way before lockdown, uh, myself and a playwright called James Harker were working on a play set in a nuclear bunker. It came from the idea of the atomic clock, which is um, a way of measuring how close we are to... <laughs> final destruction of the human race in minutes how many minutes we are to midnight and we started writing the play in response to political events back in 2015 2016 um, when the atomic clock jumped forwards when president trump was elected and we actually wrote the play the first draft of the play in hat green nuclear bunker and then it all got put on hold because of various things me finishing my phd and lockdown and now we are rewriting the play um, in response to who we are now and what the current risks are in the world. Um, so that is, again, another play that has been really drawn from place and responding to the bunker itself, to what it feels like to be shut in underground for a long time. And um, I should say that if, uh, if listeners are intrigued by where we are today, at uh, Hat Green Secret Nuclear Bunker. We'll post links so that you can um, uh, find out more about it and, and, and perhaps come and have a visit as well. 
finally, Philippa, how can uh, listeners find out more about you and your work and, and order a copy of The Half-Life of Snails? To order a copy of the book, go to the Parthian website and you can follow me on Twitter at the Jackdaws Pen, where I'll post links and photos of my trip to Chernobyl and uh, little stories and anecdotes about my writing. Excellent. And um, obviously, as, as usual, we'll, we'll share a bunch of links um, so that you can click straight through to those sites um, in the show notes for this podcast. Uh, but for now, Philippa Holloway, thank you so much for joining us on Alternative Stories today. Thank you very much. Thank you to Philippa Holloway for being our guest on Alternative Stories today. The Half-Life of Snails is published by Parthian Books on the 2nd of May and you can pre-order a copy by visiting their website at www.parthianbooks.com There'll be a link to this website and a number of others mentioned in the podcast as part of our show notes. We'd also like to thank Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker in Cheshire for hosting our interview and looking after us during our visit. Hat Green is a fascinating place to explore, so please do check them out, and if you're in the area, go and see them. Our readings in this podcast have been by Phoebe Holmes, and they're reproduced with the kind permission of Parthian Books and Philippa Holloway. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and are able, why not visit our Ko-fi page, where you can buy us a virtual coffee or sponsor a future edition of the podcast. All your donations through this route go directly into making new content, paying actors and meeting our day-to-day expenses. You can find a link in the show notes for this podcast or visit www.kofi.com slash alternative stories. And Kofi is K-O-F-I. Next week, we'll have new episodes of our other podcasts. The Write On Audio podcast, aimed at writers and book lovers, is out on Tuesday the 26th of April. And on Friday the 29th, we'll have the next instalment of our science fiction audio drama, The Dex Legacy by Emily Inkpen. The Half-Life of Snails has been an Alternative Stories 2022 production for the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. We're going to end this edition with a trailer for a new science fiction audio drama podcast we think you might enjoy. Karen Heimdall, who brought us the brilliant Y2K audio drama, is responsible for this new show called Chaker. It stars Daniel Ellett, who Alt Stories listeners may remember appeared in our black box sci-fi drama. Please listen and subscribe to Chaker if you enjoy this trailer. This is Valen Solarin, engineering lead lunar mining, seeking urgent status update on, well, Earth. Cheka, a science fiction audio drama. Nothing has been heard from the Mars colony since before Earth went silent. Maybe, uh, 
Maybe they all died too. And all I will find is their bones. I could be the last. The last human. I cannot stay. Trost. Jaka. Could you, um, could you prepare the shuttle? Affirmative. Long or short range journey? Oh. <laughs> long. Very long. Welcome. I am Hugo. How may I have the pleasure of addressing you? It's Cheka. Cheka. Russian for seagull. Call sign of Russian cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova, the first Earth woman. In space, yes, my... My mother gave me that name. Hmm. Probably time you got to know some non-human people. Oh, you, you mean like you? Yes. I am a delightful acquaintance. I... Yes, I'm sure you are. You frightened her. Ah, she'll get over it. She has other things on her mind. Cheka, releasing 2022. For more information, please visit y2kpod.com slash Cheka. That's C-H- a-I-K-A Repeat. Priority communication to Moonbase. Get back to me and tell me this is just a glitch, alright? Please. The Alternative Stories and Fake Realities Podcast. Audio drama, poetry, fiction.